Hey, this is Chris with a quick apology. Despite my best intentions and efforts, uh, the recording quality is a bit shite, and I apologize for that. Shutting stereotype and shattering stigma of being an alcoholic or addict in recovery, this is the Sense Right Now podcast. The podcast of SenseRightNow.com and Clean and Sober, K-L-E-N and S-O-B-R. John G, who many of you know as My Last Stand, and many of you also know as DJFM. He is one and the same. He is, um, among other things, the patron saint of <laughs> clean and sober, since right now, baffling situations, uh, music, yeah. and, and a fine saint to have looking over us. Right. So, uh, my John, super alter ego. Your alter ego, you're right, you're your super alter ego. So, John, welcome. Um, you've uh, met Jeff briefly. Yeah. Nice it's, to meet you, John. It's very good to meet you, too. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, over Halloween weekend, I DJed two different gigs. And Halloween night, I DJed at a club in Raleigh, which is, you know, my typical, typical club gig um and then saturday night the following saturday i dj'd uh an aa uh, post halloween party and it was it was kind of interesting to have those two things back to back because the the club world i i get um and you know not to be pejorative but uh having you know having been drunk in the club and now being on the other side of it DJing, it's easy to entertain drunk people. <laughs> Once they're drunk, right. uh, it's very easy to do. Uh, you know, you start off with something familiar or at least something quiet. I don't necessarily when I when I play in clubs, I play electronic dance music. I don't really play disco. I don't play eighties. I don't mind throwing in things here and there like that to get people's attention. But most of what I play is electronic music. So I tend to play at venues that are friendly to that. Sure. Um, but, but again, basically your, your goal is not to chase the crowd away. Just right, let them, right. just let them amuse themselves and do their thing. And that's fun. I mean, because sometimes you can catch people in a moment and then they do actually start dancing uh, and when you've got them and you have that energy, you know, and you, if you can keep that going, it's, it's an absolute blast. Yeah. Um, or if you, or even if you just see people nodding their heads and they're having a great time and you know, I don't, I don't typically get a lot of people coming up to me and making requests because if they come to the venue, they're, they're, they're looking for that kind of music. Um, now the AA party on the other hand, yeah. Uh, was completely different. Um, and it, it's interesting. I was trying, I was kind of trying to sort out which crowd was tougher. Yeah. Um, because the AA party was, uh, multi-age, multi-background. Right. There were probably about 60 to 70 people there. And it was, I mean, it was great. It was a speaker meeting that is someone comes and 
tells, you know, a 45, 50 minute version of their story. Uh, and then we sort of moved the chairs out of the way and right. I, I was Drop. set up with let's dance. Yeah. And let's, let's get down. And the funny let's thing is, is, you know, most of the people there, I'm not going to say all the people, most of the people there were in their mid to late twenties, some in their early thirties. And then everyone else was probably my age up to, you know, 65, right. uh, possibly 70. And the majority were young people. So I was trying to play music that was more oriented towards that crowd. Sure. Um, but I have never, never in my, in my entire career as a DJ had such a tough crowd. That's I, oh, yeah. Well, I had people coming up to me who were, I mean, people clearly had 20, 25 years of sobriety telling me that the music sucked. Oh, and, you're kidding. And having a tarot, you know, oh, this is, play something with a melody, play something with a beat. That's and, I'm, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, wait a second, shouldn't it be the other way around? Like, shouldn't the people who are on, who are drunk be coming up to me going, why are you playing this? Why are you playing that? Um, but it, it puts you in kind of a strange headspace. It made me, uh, briefly, it made me a little bit resentful. I was, I just thought to myself, my God, these people are complaining and I brought all of this stuff here. Yeah. You know, I'm not charging for it. It's right. an AA party. Completely volunteer gig. Right. Well, you and, got all these sober people there. All these different, it's like you're playing a wedding. It's a difference between a wedding band and a rock show, right? Or something like something. that. Yeah. No, abs and absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was it's just so it, sort of, it sort of took me aback. Yeah. Uh, but but at the end of it, I realized they're two completely different. It's not yeah, that they're right. two completely different audiences. Yeah. In in a way, they are. Yes. You know. Uh -huh. But but really, the difference is that they're for two completely different purposes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, one is for entertainment, and the other is for fellowship. Yeah. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, even even though I had people complaining, um, I also had people come up to me at the end. You know, they were as I was loading out my gear, they were trying to talk to me, and I thought, mm, "Would you help me?" <laughs> <laughs> and the speaker's really heavy. Who roped you into this gig? Yeah. <laughs> but but they would say, you know, I haven't danced like that since I was in active addiction. Oh, well, that's great. And that, you know, that's, that's really rewarding. Did you, did you adjust your set at all? Did you find some, did you like get into it and say, all right, I need to bring out some. Who let the dogs out? Yeah. Nothing like I'm playing EDM no matter what. <laughs> uh, oh, well, I mean, I, I tried, I definitely would, I'd give them some of the stuff that they wanted. I mean, I did play some Michael Jackson. It was okay. Halloween. I had to play Thriller, yeah. even though I'm just. Oh God! <laughs> like, how many times do we have to hear that song? And there's always somebody. It doesn't matter whether it's you know a crowd in the club or or wherever. There's always somebody that knows the dance and tries to the thriller dance oh, right. to get everybody else to do it. It's like the people at weddings that always try to yeah. do the electric slide, and, yeah. and you're just kind of horrified. <laughs> or I, you know. I was, but that's in just any good case. growth, though. What's interesting when you were telling that whole thing, though, it, yeah. it reminded me of. After I got sober, I came back to like the scene of the crime, essentially, which was St. Louis, where where it had ended is where I came back to after I'd had uh, like 10 months of sobriety. Sure. And uh, I had one good friend here who's very much um, into uh, dance music, as, as I am. And 
but he has he has zero <laughs> substance issues. Right. And uh, I, I said, you know, I want to I want to go back to uh, there, there's this big club across the river in basically East St. Louis where everybody would end the night because it was open later than everything over here on this side of the river. So, and um, so uh, we went out one night and I, and I said, I want to make it all the way there just to, to see what a night was like sober, you know, see what it was like now that I'm sober. And we ended up there at this, you know, in my, in my memory as a, as a, by the time I got there, I was always Totally fucked up, drunk, you know, high on who knows what else, you know, ecstasy coke. And um, I get there and I'm just like, you know, it was cavernous and it was fun and it was awesome and it was incredible. I got there and I'm just like, this is a (laughs) shithole. It is, it wasn't remotely as big as I thought it was, not remotely. And I'm just like, and I was just like, this is depressing. It's like seeing a, cl- it's like <laughs> seeing a club in the daytime, right? Because my vision was fine, so I could yeah. see everything, yeah. and I could tell. It was anyway, but I was just like, this is not cool. I'm done. I saw enough. That's fine. Um, but I still love the music, so. Yeah. Well, okay, I think we've learned something. No, you know, DJ gigs at an AA dance, yeah. man. We have to rethink this. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> well, you, are, you are in AA, right? You are a member of AA. Uh, uh, believe yes, in the higher power, I, go to lots of meetings, that whole thing. I, I am a member of AA. Uh, I do go to NA meetings as well yeah, okay. uh, f- from time to time. Uh, but alcohol, alcohol is my drug of choice. It's my, it's my primary drug of choice. Alcohol will always lead me to substances other and other substances will always lead me back to alcohol. And in a lot of respects, I had to learn that the hard way. <laughs> I never learn anything the easy way. I right. just, you know, I, I'm always amazed by people who, who come into the rooms and, and say, Oh, well, you know, I, I picked up some white chips and then I finally got it. You know, they just did it by picking up white chips and coming back enough. And then it happened for me. I would pick up like five, six white chips when I, especially when I relapsed, uh, uh, last February, I mean, February, 2013, um, I would, you know, I, I went to probably seven meetings where I picked up white chips and then eventually I just said, screw it. Um, and, and just said, this is ridiculous. I can't make this work. And, you know, then that alcoholic mindset really, really took hold. Yeah. And that's the point where, you know, you, you can't sleep anymore. And then you're up at seven o'clock because you know that the convenience store that's across the street from where you live opens at seven o'clock and they'll sell alcohol to you. And, and you're just, you're making mental plans like that. Right. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, even as I just said that I, I almost got transported back to that place. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can remember just how desperate it, it felt. Um, so then you just didn't go back for a while trying, trying this. The, uh, so how long are you up for uh, I so I first got sober in November of 2009, mm-hmm. and that was that was not by choice that I actually entered treatment. Yeah. Uh, the guy I was couch surfing with basically said, "You are going to rehab because there's nothing more that I can do for you." <laughs> so he was and, trying to get you sober. Well, or trying he, to keep he you was, sober. He, he was trying to get rid of me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's one of he's one of my oldest friends. Okay. Um, I'm not going to mention him by name, but he's one of my oldest sure. friends, and he's also the guy who basically introduced me to every drug that I ever became addicted to. 
Uh, and he's the, the guy had become the master. Eh? <laughs> well, I had overdosed at oh, his. Well. So, so it, it it's kind of it's kind of interesting. I am an alcoholic first and foremost, but I have to say that without the presence of other drugs in my life, with without you know just. The, your typical club drugs and hallucinogens. Without that, I would never. I don't think I would have hit rock bottom as quickly as I did. Yeah. Um, I think if it had just been alcohol, I probably would have been drinking for at least another decade, and I would have caused myself a lot more health problems. Yeah. And I would have just been one of those people that eventually just kind of, you know, slouched into the into the rooms and there was nothing, nowhere left to go. It would have been a very slow decline and it would have just been, I mean, it was ugly. Yeah. No, it's ugly no matter how you look at yeah. it. Yeah, right. But, but once, once I hit rock bottom, I mean, it was, it was hard. It was like I'd been dropped on the concrete. Yeah. Um, I'm always grateful. I always think that drugs help accelerate your bottom. And so in a weird way, you know, I think they're a bitch and a lot harder. Uh, when I hear someone's story, they start with alcohol, and then when they get to crack, I know that the thing is going to wind down really, really soon. Yeah, because <laughs> there's just it's an accelerator to a bottom, definitely. Well, and and see the 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 issue with me, um, basically, what had happened uh, in I'll sort of give you the preview of what what led to rock bottom. Sure, uh, I had been. Uh, my mother is a recovering alcoholic. She's been in recovery for 25 years. So I'm really, really proud of her. Sure. Uh, she, uh, uh, you know, she's my biggest ally in, in my recovery and the person who I often turn to, um, you know, when things just get really, when things get really tough for me, I mean, and they don't get really tough anymore. Not, there's nothing, there's nothing that I think is real really get getting out of hand right you know you just have those emotional bottoms every now and then your yes. brain chemistry your brain chemistry is readjusting and you have people you can call you have friends you have a sponsor um you know i i also have a sponsor um and and i also have my mom you know who you know when i was when i was a teenager was my worst enemy because you know she was she was drunk yeah. And it made it made everything hard. And now it's like the tables have turned, and here I am on the other side of it. So I understand the guilt. I understand the regret. You know, just that kind of bottomless depression that you feel when you come out on the other side of it, and you realize, you know, my God, I've done all of this horrible stuff. Um, but basically. I started drinking when I was almost 21 years old. So my mom, my mom, and the experiences with my mom really kept me away from from alcohol for a long, for a fairly long time. I know most alcoholics get their start very young. Right. Um, most addicts get their start very young. Um, but that wasn't that wasn't the case with me. Um, you know, I, I, even when I joined the band that I was in for most of my college career, um, only one of the people in the band really abused alcohol and drugs and was a drummer. And he was, he was, those drummers. yes, <laughs> drummers. um, 
Well, well, it's, fu- well, it's <laughs> funny. I like to joke with people because it was a grunge band. Yeah. I mean, it was 1994. Uh-huh. Nirvana came out when I was a senior in high school. So somebody needed to be drinking and drugging in that band, for God's sake. I mean, well, I, I, I explained it to people like this. I say, you take two, you take two musicians, a drummer and a guitar player, both of whom had fathers who were in the Vietnam War, hmm. PTSD and all the issues that come with that. And then you take me and my, you know, ACOA, my mommy issues, all that stuff. And you throw in your typical lead singer. You've got a grunge band. Right. (laughs) You've got an early 90s grunge band. And but it was it was great. I mean, we were all just young and we were so naive. And but we played shows and we recorded an album. Um, but they really, again, there wasn't really that party lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, what got me started drinking was a party in a dorm room with close friends, you know, in an intimate setting. And that's where I really discovered, hey, wait a second, there are, there are gray areas in this thing. You know, there's, there's a spectrum of yeah. people who drink. So you drink are, because your mom was an alcoholic and you knew, like, I'm not drinking because I seen my what it does to my mom and then and then at some point you ran across it right and then well i saw what i saw was not the extremes that i'd seen i mean i grew up with i grew up with andy griffith show you know otis and mayberry and you know he's who's stumbling drunk and he locks himself in jail you know and 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 it's supposed to be funny and it's a funny thing we laugh at it and then the opposite of end of that spectrum was my mom who was, you know, blackout drunk, would drive, drove me drunk to school on a few occasions. Um, you know, I'd have to take the wheel and try and pull her back over the center line. Um, and that's, you know, and again, I don't, I don't hold that resentment anymore. Just, that's just a fact. That's that's what happened. Yeah. I don't Uh, remember uh, driving with my father growing up where he didn't have a drink in his hand. Like he always had a drink in his hand. Drink, driving. It was just weird. That's just crazy. It's crazy to think about now, right? It, it really is because I can remember it. Um, I even remember the road we were on. I remember my mom's car. I remember the way the car smelled. It, it's just all those little details just stick with you. But, sure. um, but in any case, so I stayed away from it. And then eventually I found what ultimately is my, is my trigger for drinking is intimate situations. It's, it's that close group of friends and somebody busts out the beer or somebody busts out the vodka or somebody busts out the, the weed, right. or whatever it is. Um, so clubs are not a big deal for me. Yeah. Uh, not interest like that is not a trigger for me, yeah. but I have to assiduously stay away from the after parties. Huh. Like I get invited, I get, you know, people, Oh, just come on over. It'll be fine. We won't, you know, we won't force anything on you. And they never do. Right, right. Of course they don't. No, but it's – and it's never about them forcing anything on yeah, me. Right. It's about me putting that mental pressure on myself yeah. saying, yeah. oh, man, they're, they're doing this. This sucks. I remember when we used to do this all the time and it wasn't a big deal. And that's that mindset. That's that, that addict mindset kicking in telling you. Oh, just this once. Yeah. So, so being in the booth doesn't bother you. you, you that's not a big trigger. Um, just, no, not, a, you know, not at all. In fact, I'm, I am grateful that I can now DJ sober. Yeah. Because I, for most of my life, I've struggled with anxiety issues, with 
I mean, just from the time I was a little kid. I'm not one of these people that believes, oh, I was born out of the womb and I was just destined to take a drink. Right. You know, I've, I've heard that statement made in the rooms and I'm not going to really talk about how I feel about that statement mm. other than I, I, that was not me. Um, but I did have issues that were genetic, that certainly a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. Uh, my parents were both very anxious people, each in their own way. Mm. Um, and I mean, they were both professors. Right. So there's kind of a quirkiness to university professors. It really doesn't matter where you teach or, or what subject there, there's always kind of a quirkiness. And, and again, I was raised in a very loving home. Uh, my parents both loved me. I knew that, uh, I never wanted for anything, but I was dealing with all these issues. And then when my mom started drinking and, you know, she was also struggling with some other things, you know, her sexuality. And when all those things kind of came to light, they all happened at the same time. Hmm. And everything from my parents' perspective, it was probably a long a long time coming. Right. It's probably a, a slow build. They saw the things that were leading to this or that or the other. But for me, it was like my mom takes her first. I see my mom drunk for the first time. And then a year later, my parents were separated. Wow. And the process of getting divorced. And, you know, all, you try to process all of those things happening simultaneously. The, you know, my mom's substance abuse. My parents' marriage falling apart for various reasons. Um, my mom struggling with her sexuality, and you got to figure in the mid nineteen eighties, it wasn't like it wasn't you know nineteen eighty six wasn't nineteen fifty six where they thought that you know homosexuality was a mental illness, right. and it was very much considered a mental illness and was treated as such. Um, but it wasn't, you know, but 1986 wasn't 2006 where you have queer eye for the straight guy. Right. And it's not, and it certainly isn't today. I mean, North Carolina just, just legalized gay marriage. Yeah. And so it was just a different time. And it was also in that post AIDS climate, you know, when all the, the televangelists were talking about how AIDS was, uh, you know, God's punishment for homosexuals. And so you have all that rhetoric flying around and you're a kid and you love your mom and you love your parents and you're hearing all this stuff. And it's, it's almost impossible. It's so many mixed messages. It's almost impossible to process. And, you know, you combine that with my anxiety issues. It, I was at, at that point, I, I believe I was a ticking time bomb. Interesting. And I, and I think that if I had gotten, I, I can't say for certain whether or not I would have become or not become an alcoholic. But, but I, what I do know is that all of those things that happened, just the anxiety fueled the issues, you know, fueled the things that I went through. And they went untreated. Like neither of my parents put me in any kind of therapy. Um, you know, my dad and I went to church, and you know, I for a while I was very, very involved with that with so church. You, so you were just looking for something to make you feel better. It sounds like you know, like a lot of people trying to find this treat yourself. Wholeness. Yeah, right. right. And 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 I, you know, and I fully believe that there are lots of people who don't have those kinds of issues 
who just go out and they discover alcohol and they discover right. drugs right. and they just become addicted. Absolutely. And I, and I fully accept that and understand that. But I think there are also a lot of other people who are, you know, what they call dual diagnosis. They're people who, who have these emotional issues or they have this trauma from childhood or whatever sure. it was that led to those emotional issues that ultimately fueled you know, or fuels drinking, drug use, any kind of compulsive behavior like that. Well, you can't see me, but I'm raising my hand. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that's entirely why I started drinking. It had nothing to do with wanting to, you know, be in the club and be crazy. It had to do with, I, I just didn't want to feel that pain anymore. I didn't, I, it, it, it was almost so far in my past that I didn't really, I didn't really want to, I, I didn't even remember why I felt the way that I felt. Exactly. And sometimes you can't even necessarily identify it as specifically as pain. Sometimes it's just feel what you're feeling, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I sort of had a falling out with the church that I, I, well, I didn't have a, a falling out. I just, I, the church that I was attending while I was in college. And again, I was looking for things that weren't alcohol or drugs. I was going out and looking for things that were, that I felt would a keep me away from that stuff, which I was surrounded by in college, and uh, I sort of became disillusioned with this church that I was attending because they didn't like, you know, I I was an angry kid, right? So I listened to a lot of angry music. I liked Alice in Chains. I liked Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax, all all yeah, the, the good ones, <laughs> the th- all the thrash bands, and then I got yeah. death metal, um, which again. Drink. If you were an angry teenager, the early 1990s were a perfect place yeah. for to be. Yeah. Um, and I, I loved that music. Couldn't necessarily relate to all the lyrics, but it gave me a it it, it gave me a sense of security. Know that knowing that there was somebody else ang- out there who was as angry as I was right. about whatever it was they were angry about. And you know, music really was the thing that kind of kept me sane through all that. Like listening to music, there was always music in my car. I had, you know, there was always music around me and I was playing music all the time. Um, but, you know, once once I took that first drink, uh, you know, there was a period of about seven years before I had my first real consequences with it. I mean, there were little things, there were hangovers, you get sick, but, but they're not, nothing as serious as a DUI or, you know, something like that. And I was arrested for DUI in uh, early 2002. And that was kind of a wake up call. You know, that's one of those things that's kind of like the warning shot fired across the bow. Did you do any time because of it? Did you go to jail? Uh, no, it, because it was my, because it was my first offense and because I was cooperative and all those, all these other things. And I had a, do you remember your breathalyzer? Just out of curiosity. Uh, it was, uh, when it was at the station, it was 0.16. Um, so, and that was, you know, probably about two hours after you. Yeah, it was probably about an hour and a half after I'd actually been pulled over. So I can only imagine what it was at the, at the side of the road. Right. Um, but in any case, that was, you know, I, I didn't really learn my lesson. I just, I realized, okay, drinking and driving is stupid. 
Um, and I don't want any part of it. And I didn't want any part of it for two whole months. <laughs> and then I was right back out there doing it again. Um, prior, even, prior to that, can I, can I just ask you, so when you, when you started though, knowing what you knew, I think like about your, your background, your mother's usage, mm-hmm. when you started in your head, was there any sense of I've begun traveling down a, a slippery slope? Any it, of that? I mean, it's, it's an interesting question because I remember, so the first night that I got drunk again, it was probably September, October of 1994. Um, it, you know, again, literally a month or two before my 21st birthday. So I had to break the law, right? I had to drink underage. I just, I had to make a statement like that. That's amazing. Right. So I said, okay, I'll go, you know, go to this dorm party. Again, I was around good friends. I drank a six pack of Budweiser in an hour, you know, and I had no tolerance. I'd never had alcohol before in my life. So of course I got really sick. Right. And I remember you know, feeling amazing for three hours. <laughs> and then, you know, I started to get sick and I started puking. And I remember being in the bathroom in their suite, uh, in their dorm room, there was like four dorm rooms and one connecting bathroom. And I was in their bathroom and I was just over the toilet crying and puking. And I, my friend came in and was like, Are you okay, man, you're going to be okay. Don't worry. Everybody gets sick. And I was like, bawling <laughs> and I, I was I'm going to turn out and I said these words I said I'm going to turn out just like my mom oh, <laughs> you had written on your blog that Budweiser was the last thing you had drank too those 40 ounces in your car is that still is that the case that was that was this relapse yeah so that was your last drink too that was your first drink your last drink <laughs> came full circle man yeah yeah it was pretty it was pretty sad I was in yeah I was outside the the treatment center here in uh so you were going to go into treatment and you wanted to be drunk to go in or you just had this was just the last I mean I was I was basically at at my wits end with with how everything had progressed in my life yeah at that point and I I was so far gone I Oh man, I mean, it was just like the relationship that I had basically been trying to nurture and, and, and make work for five years through, you know, through that trip to rehab and just all the other issues, it wasn't working, you know, I'd I'd lost my job and I, I I had basically come to the end of my rope. And so I was sitting in my car outside this treatment center with you know, I had gone gone to the grocery store. Well, no, it was actually uh, like a, you know, one of those little quick marts, right. yeah. the gas station. And I just went in and bought two 40-ounce beers and just knocked them both back in my car. And I knew that I could either drive back to my, you know, my girlfriend's apartment or I could check myself into treatment. Interesting. And somehow in that state, I said, I, I, I don't have anywhere else to go. Yeah. I have to go to treatment. So this time, I checked myself in. I was not taken there. Yeah. I, I, I walked in and turned myself in of my own free, my own free will. So is that the moment for you? Do, you? do you remember having like a moment of clarity or something that compelled you to do that? Because that seemed like the, as you were writing about that, looking back on it, it seemed like that was a powerful moment that stuck with you. Uh, I mean, it was, 
Uh, but just you you personally making that decision to go to treatment this time versus I think that I think the decision in and of itself was the moment of clarity. Yeah, right. It yeah. was that, you know you hit that point of no return where you do where you make a decision. You're like, okay, if I'm going to get drunk, I'm going to get all the way drunk. I'm going to get completely fucked up, and there's no going back. Right. I am putting I'm I'm putting this stuff down, and I'm going to go in and just turn myself into this treatment facility, and and be done with it. Yeah. And I, and I do, I mean, that very much was the turning point for me because I, I knew in and of myself that at that point there was nothing else, there was nothing else that I could do. I just, I knew at that point that I, I didn't have another option. If I continued down the path that I was going, I was just going to, I was going to continue losing more and more and more. Yeah. It was your last stand, man. Is that where the name came from? This is your uh, last stand? So... Um, my, my last stand comes from, um, my album, which is called last man standing Okay. and last man standing was, they were instrumentals. Some of them were instrumentals that I'd started when I was in active addiction, yeah. um, and active uh, and going back a little bit, my, my true descent to rock bottom started in 2007. And that's kind of where I started writing the music um, because that was really where I started to get into drugs other than alcohol, um, mostly ecstasy, LSD, um, you know, LSD, which can be habit forming, but is not necessarily addictive, yeah. but I certainly didn't need to take it for anything. <laughs> you know, there was no, there was no need other than, okay, I want to see colors. Right. I want to roll and I want to love everybody, but I also want to see colors while I'm doing it. So let's combine these two and see what kind of problems we can create. Right. Um, but 2007, I had left the band that I was playing in. Uh, was really frustrated with that situation, so I started DJing more than I ever had at that point. Um, I got a new. I had left the girl that I was dating because it just wasn't working. Uh, we're still good friends. Uh, it's probably the only relationship where I'm still good friends with this person, and of your using of the people you knew using versus now, right? She did. She did not use drugs. Like she was absolute. She could. She enjoyed drinking, right. but she did not use drugs and was vehemently opposed to to drugs other than alcohol. Right. Um, and so I did not. You know. It, I had experimented with drugs a little bit probably in 1997 because that's when I started going to parties a lot, um, to raves a lot. Mm -hmm. and But it never took hold because it seemed like every pill that I bought was bogus. Hmm. You know, I'd spend $25 on this little pill that everyone else seemed to enjoy, but for me it just it just kind of fell with a dull thud. Everybody always thinks the DJ has the hookup. No, I know. Right? Yeah, I was I like – You can't get drugs from a DJ. What's the point? <laughs> Well, and I wasn't a DJ at that point. Oh, okay. All right, all right. Like in 1990, I didn't start DJing until 1998. Okay. You were talking about Last Man Standing. Right. And a lot of that music was in, was produced while I was in active addiction. So some of those, some of the hooks I wrote while I was completely high. I mean, just gone. But the, the problem is that because drugs were the priority, the songs never got finished. I mean, they just sort of languished as sort of half- half-formed ideas. Yeah. 
and they just sat there and they never got finished and they never got built on. And, you know, I spent basically from 2007 to 2009, I, I literally partied like a rock star every single weekend. It was from Friday, 6 PM to Sunday, you know, at two or 3 AM, no sleep, just go, go, go every, you know, all the clubs, all the after parties I could go to. Um, and it was a great escape for me. You know, I worked, I literally worked during the week so that I would have the money to be able to live and then have money to party. And that was, that was all I was interested in. Um, and you know, the DJing was just, it just happened to also be going on at the same time. So I was surrounded by people who were buying me drinks, you know, people, I I had one person actually come up to me after my set and just pop a pill in my mouth the the minute I finished. So it was, it was almost like I was in a different, it wasn't even so much the rules didn't apply, but that I was in a different universe where there were no rules. But so how do you manage that now? I mean, there's not, I mean, somebody could just as easily come up and pop a bill in your mouth now yeah. or well, that know, was, they're buying you drinks now. Or. That was a close friend. Okay. That that was a person okay. at the time who was a close friend. I wouldn't just have a total stranger come up. <laughs> okay, and, <laughs> that's well, good. Uh, even even when I was even when I was out there and everything was was crazy, yeah. I would never I would never have let somebody do that. Um, and I I suppose part of the reason for that is because again I started using drugs, really really abusing drugs other than alcohol, right. very late in my life. So they hadn't really my brain had not been altered early on to seek, to seek something like that. Um, necessarily. So they didn't, they didn't necessarily take hold as quite as firmly or those that, that really, really bad decision-making. I, I guess I somehow, you know, you call it Providence or whatever. I was spared from that. Well, that's a good point. Uh, Cause they say when you really, when your addiction really takes hold is you sort of stop maturing and so, and also that the earlier you begin, the more likely you are to yeah. develop those addictive tendencies. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Um, but I mean, but still, though, I'm, I'm curious how how do you manage that now? Um, I mean, because the, the the environment's the same and the behavior, your your what you're doing is the same. How well, do you? Oh, sorry. It just well, the, seems challenging. The th- yeah. The interesting thing is that m- most of the people who are in the Raleigh scene, the Raleigh scene is very small. <clears throat> The Chapel Hill scene is very, very small. I mean, the, there hasn't the electronic music scene in North Carolina is very small. It's very segmented, and those segments are very close knit. Mm-hmm. And so, the people who are in these bars and in these clubs that I play, they all know. I, I, I explain to them, I don't drink. You know, I don't use drugs. I don't care if people around me are using drugs. I just don't use drugs. So. I mean, I DJed Revolution, which was an event that uh, happened at a local, actually a local rock venue, which Mm -hmm. traditionally had been a rock venue, but they had an amazing sound system and stage and lights. And, you know, I auditioned after four months in sobriety and I got the gig and I played, you know, I I was the resident DJ for, for close to, close to three years. Uh, and never, never drank, never mm-hmm. used drug. And in fact, had people who were, you know, sober, clean and sober and in the rooms with me, a group of eight to 10 people who would try to come out almost every single time That's I played Revolution to see me. And, and I always DJed for those people. 
I would see them in the crowd That's and right. they were just cheering me on That's and that right. was just the best feeling in the world is to know that here were these people who were coming out to support me even in that environment. And speaking of that, what do you think of this new, I mean, there definitely seems to be a new movement to sober raves and clubs and I've been reading that. The one about the, the club in Sweden has been making the rounds, but there's a lot of that going on in the States too, I understand. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, um, the, it, it's, it's interesting. I will be curious to see how that takes off here. Well, your experience at the AA dance, it's like, we need something, right? But, and I was even reading about, yeah. and I got to find it, I'll post it in the liner notes, but yeah. about it happening like during the week before work, like people getting up and going to them at like seven oh, in the morning yeah, yeah. and then going to work. It's like a workout or something. Yeah. It's like, start your day. yeah, it's like, interesting. Yeah, you, I can't remember where we were yeah, anyway. talking about. That's cool. It, it, it is. It's weird for me, though. <laughs> it is weird. But. For me, for me yeah. even even though I'm sober now, even though I'm clean and sober now, I, I couldn't envision myself, hey, I'm not a morning person. Right. I, I, you know, I know all these people who love to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and go to the first meeting of the day, and then they they do their readings, and they're, they're you know, two two and a half hours into their day. Before I even lift an eyelid, mm. you know, my alarm goes off and it's snooze button, snooze button, snooze button. Yeah. So the thought of going to a party seven in the morning, <laughs> right? It, in the morning before I go to work is is just uh, I, I can't wrap my head around that. But I'm not going to. I, I don't want to put it down. I no, think, no. hey, if that's if that's yeah. what these people want to do, that's fine with me. Um, and I, I like the idea of sober events. I think it would be great. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, you always had an element of people who were going to, e even in the early rave scene, you know, even in the rock scene, you, you always have people who are going to want to get fucked up. Mm. You, you've always, I mean, it's just, it's, it's in the history of, of the music. Right. It's just, it's, it's, it's almost interchangeable with the music in terms of the rave scene. Like you had ecstasy and then you had dance music, uh, especially once it went over to Europe here in the States in Chicago, most of the early producers of, of house music, they didn't really take drugs. Um, it wasn't until it moved over to England that that culture kind of took hold. And then when it made it back to this country, you know, three or four years later, of course the drugs came with it. Sure. And, and that's really how the rave scene started here. But even those parties weren't, weren't huge. Even the big parties were still held in warehouses right. and in, you know, like civic centers, not, not these, I mean, like electric Daisy carnival today, for instance. I mean, that's, that's basically like a professional sporting event. It's, it's, it's like the halftime show at the Super Bowl stretched out over an entire day right. with the lights and the music and the um, the you're basically corralling a lot of people who are all clearly high and drunk on something who are what I like to call the weekend warrior types. They're not really – they're not necessarily the people who use drugs all the time every single day but they go to these festivals and it's an excuse for them to just go absolutely nuts. Yeah. And because they don't do it all the time, I, I mean, it's not like people who are on drugs or who are who I like to call professional drug users exactly. understand better than other people. But they do, there are certain points where they're like, hey, okay, now it's kind of getting a little crazy. Somebody might get arrested. And I've seen it. 
you know, but, but I mean, you see these videos from electric daisy carnival of, you know, kids just walking into trees. There's one of this girl who's just making out with a tree. Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, I, I can understand why that's happening. Right. But, but they make so much money off these events uh, and they're, they're just – they're a lightning rod for, you know, for the press to say, oh, look at, these, look at these one-off dance music events and you have these people getting hurt. And I mean, I mean it's, just, it's just a lightning rod yeah. and people then link that behavior to the music and then it, it, it takes the music down a notch you know, where the music really isn't about that. But then suddenly you have the general population go, oh, well, clearly that's about the drugs. Clearly these parties and this music and that, that scene is about the drugs. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate. So I hope that sober parties and drug-free parties take off. Sure. I really do. I think the idea of, you know, some of these organizations like, um, I mean, here in North Carolina, we have Recovery NC. Um, we, then there are, you know, nationwide organizations that, that could, you know, pool their resources and have a big sober dance event, right. you know, not necessarily AA or NA, but you know, these, or, a lot of these lobbying organizations. This is something you need to produce. Right. You know how it is. I was going to ask you about your, your routine now. Just what, tell us about your day sobriety. Do you get up, do you pray, do you meditate, go to a meeting? What do you, I, when I usually like? So when, when I get up, um, I usually, usually when I get up in the morning, first thing I'm useless. Um, I couldn't be sincere about it. So you're just learning, you know, that's that's from years of being in a band and a DJ. I couldn't be, I, I, I couldn't, it's, it's a miracle for me to get out of the bed and make it to the bathroom to wash, you know, to take a shower and, and deal with that. And then once I've done that, and once I've eaten breakfast, I actually usually pray in the car hmm. before I leave for work. Okay. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a big part of it for me because. So you drive, have higher power. We talk about this every week. Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, we just, I always uh, ask everyone because some guests we had on, we had on a agnostic last week. So you believe in a higher power just as a, I, yeah, I, I mean, again, I come from the Christian tradition. Uh, That was the church that I attended, but I have really, like recently I've really, really struggled with what my concept of a higher power is. So I choose to look for, I mean, again, this is just for me, not, not to say anybody else should just totally believe what I do, but I, the way I look at it is I see the world around me, um, and I, I look at I look at nature. I don't worship nature, but I look at nature and I look at the way it it operates. Uh, I am not in control of it. It grows, it builds, it tears down, and it does all of this without my consent or my control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, to me, is my higher power. Okay. It's, oh, it's everything. It's everything outside of me, and yeah. and most of that is outside of my control. And yeah. yet, I know that. It is taking care of me, you know. The world sure. is, I, again. I, it's. I don't want to sound like I'm. You know, like I've got rocks that I have. You know, that are special to me, or that I. <laughs> well, that I, <laughs> we're not judging people but, that have rocks no, that are special no. to them. But but hmm. but for me, it's it, a it really is it's a big energy, right? 
It, it is it, right um, because you know. Again, I just I, I've sort of been disillusioned by not necessarily by the concept of a higher power or even the concept of God, but just this idea of what happens to human beings when they all decide that one thing is true, and when they all get together and they and they decide that this one here is this one thing that can be the exclusive solution to our problems mm-hmm. and it's external to ourselves you 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 have a bunch of it, you can have some really really scary stuff happen sure. um you know a lot of I don't know. I don't want to go too much into it because, again, no, okay. I... Yeah, so, it's, I, 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 Tell us about your day. I'm glad we were I, talking about that. Yeah, so I get in my car and I, I go to work and if I have moments at work where I have, you know, I maybe I'm struggling with something, I will take a mental break and I'll take a step back and just pray quietly to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a web designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's what I do. That's Every my day, day job. Um, and so I'll take a step back from the computer and then because, you know, AA has all these amazing resources online, I'll surf to, you know, the, I mean, the, uh, the daily meditation is online. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I can just pop that open and read it and think about it and then I'll do that. Yeah. Um, us- usually two, two or three times a week okay. uh, just to, just to look at it. And then, uh, you know, I leave work and. Usually I'll go to a meeting. I go to about four or five meetings a week. Cool. Interesting. Um, I don't. I don't go every day. I've never done ninety and ninety. Uh, that's ninety meetings in ninety days. Uh, one each day for ninety days. And a lot of people swear by that, but for me, I just. I know that if I do that, it's going to. I'll get tired of it very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and I, I try to keep certain meetings that I always make and then others that I'll go one week and then not the next and I'll try something different next and then go and then go back. So you mix them up, you go to a variety of meetings. I, I do go to a variety of meetings, but there are meetings that I keep. Yeah, um, everywhere. There are meetings that I do keep uh, regularly. My home group right. is one of those um, there's a there's a meeting that I go to on on Wednesdays that that is becoming one of those uh, and has been a meeting on Saturday. There was a meeting an NA meeting that I was going to on Saturdays for quite a long time. Uh, now that's changed to an AA meeting. So, um, but it's for me it's necessary to have both. It's necessary to have that variety, but it's also necessary to have these groups that I go to where it's the same people. Yeah. I see them grow or I see them struggle and, and, and I become personally involved with those right. people. And, and they see that in you. That's what's always the most powerful thing is people point. You never see the growth in yourself until someone tells you like what a mess you were the first day you walked in here. Oh, yeah. And, and there are a few people who remember. Uh, one of the guys I lived with in the Oxford house, he and I still keep in, in touch. And he was in, treat, he was in treatment with me back in July of last year. He was in treatment with me at the same treatment facility. We, we both got into the same Oxford house, same phone call, same day. Uh, and up until that moment, I had no place to go. I was fully anticipating that I was going to be making some room in my car and I was just going to be sleeping in my car. Yeah. And Oxford um, house, just to clarify, that's sort of a, a living yeah. 
Uh, um, is it the tre- residential treatment? Residential center? treatment. That's what. Is that saying. right? It is not an Oxford. It's a place you go after to halfway house for after treatment, right? Yes, it is. Uh, it it's uh, entirely self-supporting, just like yeah. you know, just like the meetings, just like the rooms. Yeah. Uh, it's they're usually a house of probably seven to eight people of the same sex. So you have women's houses, you have men's houses. Yeah. Uh, all self-governing. You have a house president. You have a house uh, comptroller. You have a house bookkeeper, uh, chore coordinator. I, I mean, people that basically are there to inf- you, you sort of enforce the rules yourself. Yeah. And sometimes that works really well, and sometimes it can be absolute hell. Chaos. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah. You really and you really learn about principles before personalities. In those houses, and by principles before personality, I mean you, you learn that it doesn't matter whether you think this person who is your roommate is an asshole. Yeah. What matters is that you you put your personal needs aside, and you say, "Well, this guy falls asleep with his TV on every night. I'm going to buy earplugs yeah. and yeah. solve that problem, and let that person have their quirks, yeah. and try and make sure that I'm going to be the best person that I can be, so that they." So that they're encouraged and they continue to stay so. Because yeah. it's and and that's why. How long were you in that house for? Uh, say that one more time. How long were you in the Oxford house for? Uh, the first Oxford house that I lived in, which again was in it was in two thousand nine. It was December of two thousand nine. I stayed in that house for close to a year. Okay. Um, and then this time I was in the house for probably about four months. Okay. My intention was to stay longer, but. Um, I I got to a place I was a because I hadn't gotten myself into as many financial difficulties this time out I was able to find a good job fairly quickly um, you know again these are things that most addicts just don't have you know I have a college degree I have a long work history that isn't too sorted <laughs> not yet <laughs> and I want to keep it that way but you know it's I was able to go out and find a good job and I just threw myself into it. And, uh, and so I was able to save money and get my own apartment. And uh, it's, it's been a really good decision. Um, the, the apartment that I live in is fairly close to a meeting that I can walk to. Uh, so if I have, you know, if I find myself in a really tough spot someday, I, I have no excuse. I can just get up and walk yeah. to this meeting or meeting five times a day. So what, so what is, we're kind of just, uh, at that, at that witching hour. But tell, I'd love to hear just this time in sobriety. You went through treatment twice. You kind of have done this twice now, but this specific time, what's the difference? Like, just how would you sum it up? Uh, what what feels like it's made the biggest difference? Uh, I took action. Yeah. Hmm. Taking action is probably the first the first time around. I had the gift of desperation. Right. And the gift of desperation was I had overdosed. I had $25,000 in hospital bills because I had no insurance. Um, I had no job. So I was basically working. I was delivering pizza to try and to try and save money. And I'd also been arrested for my second DUI and a possession charge. So I was facing legal charges. I had hospital bills. And I had a basically a minimum wage job that also where I also made tips. Wow. So, so I had the gift of desperation. I was, I was absolutely focused on not drinking and using because I knew where it would lead me. Yeah. 
But once that, once you overcome all those difficulties, which I did, you, you know, you fall back into that mindset. You're like, Oh, I'm not going, I'm going to one, two meetings a week and I'm fine. I don't feel tempted to, you know, go out and use, but you know, the relationship situation isn't going so well, but that's okay. That's not a big deal. I should probably be here for that instead of at a meeting, you know. Yeah, you just and slowly talk yourself out of quitting going to meetings, quitting going to whatever. And one then, step backwards yeah. at a time. Yeah, <laughs> right. And within, and within two years after getting sober the first time, within two years, um, I started smoking weed again. Yeah. And, and I wasn't drinking. And I had convinced myself that that smoking the weed was okay and it truth be told the the physical consequences from smoking weed are not as great as they are from alcohol but the consequences in terms of my addictive behavior are the exact same i i developed a tolerance i was Mm -hmm. smoking all the time and once i had developed a tolerance for weed i realized well, the only thing that's going to fix this is alcohol and all the situation. Again, I had gotten into all these situations. I was away from the meetings. I was not talking to my sponsor. I didn't really have anybody around me that was supporting any kind of a program. And that's really where, that's really where things started to spiral out of control. Um, but the big difference is action. Sure. Um, I mean, I worked the steps with a sponsor the first time around. Um, and I had my heart in it because right. I believed in it, but I didn't really take it any further than that. Um, you know, this time out, I, I chaired a meeting on Tuesday night for the better part of a year. Yeah. And, you know, that's been incredibly rewarding. I've just started, just started sponsoring people. Um, and that's, that's huge. Um, you know, uh, maintaining my blog, that's, that's also huge. Um, sometimes it, it, it's interesting to have an online recovery presence as well as a recovery presence out in, you know, day-to-day life. You have people that you're in physical contact with, you know, their struggles personally, you talk to them on the phone, you, you go to meetings with them. Sometimes you play in bands with them. Uh, you know, which is the case with me now. And, and then you have this online, I have this entire other online recovery presence, you know, like you, Chris, um, Holly from, uh, hip sobriety, right. Um, you know, she's great, uh, doing a lot of amazing stuff there. Um, really she is a person who's gotten me to challenge my idea of what so when I self-identify as an addict or self-identify as an alcoholic in the room, what does that do to my perception of myself? Which, and so that's, that, that's led me to, to you know, think really hard about that. Yeah. Um, I do which, it in the rooms. I've never be- questioned before. You know, that's just part of right. the deal. Which is, and that's a big part of what's going on now, which brings up a good point. I would I definitely, I think at some point um, – First of all, I, I, I hate to, to cut you off, but um, that that my that witching hour is here, as Jeff said. Um, sure. And every time we, we have something on, I'm like, man, an hour goes fast. Mm-hmm. And and I probably did you a disservice in your intro. I should have stated that every time I've talked to you, it's so clear that you think deeply about everything. And and I, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's it's terrific. It made me part way through. I'm like, <clears throat> excuse me. I want to start a music podcast so I can talk to you about music now because it was, <laughs> I, I was going to get lost in the music portion yeah, yeah. of this. I'm like, wait a minute. 
That's not what this one is. Um, but uh, <laughs> so trust that happen, happens to me all the time. Yeah. But that, that th- and just to quickly interject, that thinking all the time, that always having thoughts going through my right. head, that was one of the reasons that I, that was also one of the reasons that I started using substances sure. is to quiet that. Exactly. It, well, that's me all the time. Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't realize, I didn't realize that if you were sober and you developed coping mechanisms that were outside of using substances, that you can actually, you can live with that. Right. You, you can sleep. You can wake up and do work and focus. Right. You just have to train your mind to do it. Right. And that's what I never had. And so I ended up turning to, you know, turn, well, turning to lots of other things. Yeah, so. dealing with life without substances is, is, is mental effort, exertion, and otherwise it's, you know, it's chemical, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. adding chemicals. Um, but so, um, man... Uh, that was a lot. We yeah, that a lot. was a lot. And I, I mean, it's great to finally have you on. Yeah. And 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 um, keep rocking. Thanks for doing the music. Yes, oh, I know. What, at thanks some for point in the show. Yeah. Oh, but and uh, one one quick final point. Sure. Going going back to the album, the reason the album means so much to my last stand, and the reason I named my my blog my last stand and the album my last man standing is because most of the album was finished while I was living in that first Oxford house. I was, you know, I was in the basement. If I wasn't at work, I was in there every night with my headphones, just sitting there mixing music. Um, and that was basically that whole album sums up every emotion that I had when I was in active addiction. And that's why it's so important for me to get it out there is so that I can, I mean, reach out to the people, sure, that like the music because they want to rage out, but also to reach people who maybe can relate to some of the emotions I try to convey. Absolutely. So, but that's, that's the story behind My Last Stand and Last Man Standing. Well, Perfect. we appreciate you sharing it with us because, I mean, I, I, I feel it. Um, yeah. I, I really do. And, uh, you know, I, I listen to it every week as I'm, <laughs> you know, putting these together. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's fantastic. So, cool. Well, thank you. Oh no problem! Yeah, it was great we'll, to meet. We'll put a that. link to that. Yeah, yeah, link, yeah. Well, it's a li- you're uh, you're well linked in, in everything that uh, goes out. Right. You're in every newsletter, and you're on the site, and you, and you probably know that. But uh, yeah, oh, big fan. Okay. Well, I I really do appreciate that. Right, so. man. Well, um, thanks again, and and you know we'll have to do a follow up, and maybe I'll start a music podcast so I can talk to you about music. All right, <laughs> All right man. Hey, I'm 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 absolutely down. All right. Well, maybe right. you start a music podcast, and I'll yeah, talk to yeah, you about music on your <laughs> on your podcast. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, All you right. guys take care. You Thanks too. So See you. Bye.